afternoon and welcome to the 148th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we will discuss the history of pediatric AIDS and talk about lessons from that history that help us see the COVID-19 pandemic more clearly with Jason Chernesky, Janet Golden, and Stephen Pemberton. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 14th, 2020, there are 1,088,463 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 7,870,653 cases in the United States. That's up from 7,817,863 cases reported yesterday. There are now a total of 216,169 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 215,355 deaths reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. And I'd like to continue that now. The headline, he is 16 and his mother died of COVID-19. What happens to him now? By Nikita Stewart. This appeared in the New York Times, August 13th, 2020. I'll put the story up on Twitter because you'll also want to check out the photographs, remarkable photographs by Gabriela Bascar that accompany this article. For the Freisen brothers, the year had begun on a hopeful note. They had finally reunited with their mother, Beatrice McMillian, after years of being in foster care. Ms. McMillian had secured rental assistance for an apartment so she could move out of a homeless shelter. The older brother, Kassan was embarking on adulthood, working at Whole Foods and attending community college. The younger brother, EJ, was living with his mother and doing well in high school. Then in April, Ms. McMillian died of COVID-19. Her death shattered everything the family had gained. Mr. Fryson, 22, headed to court to try to become his 16-year-old brother's guardian and keep him from returning to foster care. He needs someone and I'm going to be that person, said Mr. Fryson. When the coronavirus pandemic killed thousands of people in New York City, it made orphans of an unknown number of children. At least eight children have been placed in foster care because their parents died from the virus, according to the City Administration for Children's Services. The total number is likely higher. Children and families with more money or wider support systems usually handle guardianship issues privately. The sudden loss has thrust some young adults like Mr. Fryson into the unexpected role of surrogate parent, fighting to keep what's left of their families together. Your physical home is gone, your emotional home is gone. Then you're going to be put with someone you've never known in your life, said Karen J. Friedman, the founder and executive director of Lawyers for Children, which represents children in foster care, including some whose parents died in the pandemic. That is a terrifying process for any child. 
Jessica Barrera, 16, faced the prospect of losing her home this spring. Her father died of tuberculosis in March, just as the virus was erupting in New York. Jessica's mother, Maria Arizaga, who worked in a bakery, was worried about how to care for Jessica and her older brother, Luis. Her parents had immigrated from Ecuador and did not have close family in Brooklyn where they lived. At the funeral, Ms. Arizaga turned to a family friend, Cesar Sabillo, and remarked that her children would now belong to him. It was the kind of brief emotional remark that a grieving person might whisper in the moment, and Mr. Sabillo politely nodded. Only weeks later, Ms. Arizaga died of COVID-19. Her son, Luis, began desperately looking for an adult to be a guardian to Jessica so that she would not be placed in foster care. At 19, he was about two years too young to be considered for the role. The last time I spoke to my mom on the phone, she said, if anything happens to me, just take care of your sister, okay? Mr. Barrera said, I had to be the responsible one for my sister. He turned to Mr. Sevilla, who had just recovered from the coronavirus himself. Mr. Sevilla then asked his sister, Laura, to help. Ms. Sevilla, who has her own teenage daughter, said she had to establish remote learning for Jessica, take her to the doctor, make sure she was eating, tasks that Luis, who worked at a supermarket and attended college, could not handle on his own. He also had to plan a trip to Ecuador, where he and his sister took their parents' ashes in July. The judge granted temporary guardianship, which will likely be extended, but the judge will have to ultimately decide who will be Jessica's permanent guardian. Mr. Fryson was determined to prevent his brother EJ from having to return to foster care. The brothers went into the care of the state in 2013 after their father died of prostate cancer. Their mother, Ms. McMillian, was in prison serving a sentence for manslaughter. But Ms. McMillian, who killed her boyfriend in a domestic dispute in 2009, was a fierce protector from prison, Mr. Fryson said. She monitored the welfare of her sons in phone calls to foster parents and agencies. She pushed to get her sons moved into a more suitable home, and they told her they were having problems with one foster mother, Mr. Fryson said. When Mr. Fryson learned his mother had coronavirus and would be hospitalized, he immediately went to the homeless shelter where his family was staying in Kipps Bay and got his brother. Doctors ordered them to quarantine for two weeks in his apartment on the Lower East Side, so they were unable to visit their mother before she died in the hospital. He reached out to Lawyers for Children, which had represented them in the past. The group referred him to a private lawyer, Philip Katz, who said a judge recently awarded Mr. Price in custody, although there are still complications. Mr. Fryson cannot have overnight visitors for long stays at the supportive house building where he lives, so EJ sometimes has to bunk with relatives. Mr. Fryson has applied to move into a larger apartment in the building so the brothers can live together full time. Mr. Fryson said his mother would have wanted them to stay together. She was a good mom, he said. Okay, I'd like to turn to our conversation for today. We have a really great conversation planned. Three experts today, and I want to introduce them. Jason M. Scherneski earned his PhD in the history and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania. He studies the histories of healthcare, children's health, public health, and environmental history in the 20th century United States. His dissertation, just defended the littlest victims, pediatric AIDS, and the urban ecology of health in the late 20th century United States, explores what happens when a disease associated with the taboo behavior of adults begins affecting infants and children. Pediatric AIDS was a disease of poverty, which became closely associated with the multiple problems of the inner city. 
an urban geography that for many Americans was situated elsewhere. Jason's other scholarly interests include urban history, public history, and cultural history. Dr. Stephen Pemberton is faculty in history at the New Jersey Institute of Technology and Rutgers University, Newark. He's a historian of medicine, disease, and health with expertise in United States history and the history and sociology of science. His research and teaching is also informed by his training in philosophy and his engagements with medical humanities scholarship and health policy debates over the past 25 years. His book, The Bleeding Disease, Homophilia, Hemophilia and the Unintended Consequences of Medical Progress appeared with Johns Hopkins University Press in 2011. Janet Golden, PhD, is Professor Emerita of History at Rutgers University. She specializes in the history of medicine, history of childhood, women's history, and American social history. She's the author or editor of numerous books and articles, including Babies Made Us Modern, How Infants Brought Americans into the 20th Century, out with Cambridge Press, Message in a Bottle, The Making of Fetal Alcohol Syndrome with Harvard Press. She co-edits the Critical Issues in Health and Medicine series at Rutgers University Press and is the recipient of many grants and fellowships, including those awarded by the National Institutes of Health, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Commonwealth Fund, and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Jason, Stephen, and Janet, thank you so much for making time to join me on Cove Calls today. Thank you, Scott. Happy to be here. Thank you. This is a powerhouse medical history team here today. I've really <laughs> been looking forward to this call, and I've learned a lot even in just preparation for it. And I'd like to start the way we usually do, which is really just find out where you're all calling from and what the pandemic is looking like there today. And then we'll turn uh, to the subject area for today. Jason, can I start with you, please? Sure. Um, uh technically calling in from West Philly. Uh, and uh, Janet's also in Philadelphia, so we're, we may have the same uh, information. Um, I think everything is okay over here, um, as it can be. I actually rode the bus for the first time since March today to get to campus. I thought that was very interesting. Um, everything, Everyone was wearing masks. The whole thing was set up very well. Um, I, it was very nice. Um, and Janet could correct me or, or, or not on this, but it also seems like Philly's done a pretty good job of keeping the numbers down um, uh, since June. I mean, it's it's been it's been okay, um, and you know, people are wearing masks and you know, um, it, it, keeping socially distant and and everything. Um, but I haven't been doing a whole heck of a lot outside except for running, walking, and. That's about it, because I've been finishing the dissertation and, and inside either this room or my other two room uh, apartment in West Philly. So, you know, that's a, that's about it. <laughs> I guess if there is a time to be locked down, finishing the dissertation is <laughs> is that time. Yeah. What about campus, yeah. though? Uh, Penn's not open at all, only for graduate students. What's the situation there? Um, it's not open at all, really. I mean, students are. Um, off campus, they they're not on campus. Um, we're we're I'm TAing this semester, so we're doing all remote um, teaching, right? Um, we we have to do these like daily check-ins online. So when I come into the office, like at where I am today, um, I have to show the security guard in our building. You know, we have to you know make sure we have no symptoms. Um, you know, there's limited capacity in buildings. I can't speak for the whole university, just here, but 
um, I could tell you in our in our building, there's, you know, I don't think I see more than two, three people a day. Yeah. Janet, same question to you. Where are you calling from and, and how's it looking? Well, I guess I'm, I could say I'm on the other side of the river, not the track. <laughs> yeah, in Philadelphia, in, in the Fairmount neighborhood. Um, I check the site uh, COVID Act now every day. Uh, because in, and now that I've retired, I do some political work and I need to know where it's safe to maybe send volunteers or not so safe. Um, so Philadelphia had kind of gotten into the outbreak imminent stage for a while, but I know today our, our uh, conveyance rate is under 1.0. So we're doing a little better today, but it, uh, Pennsylvania is now in a kind of uh, riskier place than it was more recently as is much of the country. And um, we'll, we'll have to see what happens in the coming months. I, I'll add that I did get my flu shot and I hope everybody else does too. I had mine. Uh, just to follow up on that, what's your sense of that, Janet, that, that this is sort of the expected second wave because people are spending more time indoors or this is opening of some some schools or some other factors that we can't put our handle on? Because what you've described is also the situation in New Jersey too. We're starting to see that edge back up where we don't want to be. Uh, you know, it's hard to know whether it's people are going into restaurants a little bit or indoors a bit more or meeting in groups a bit more. Or today I saw, I think it was in the, I can't remember where I saw it, you know, the drier air now that we've, the heat's come on in the winter apparently uh, keeps those aerosols moving more indoors, keeps them alive a little longer. Uh, so um, it's, it's kind of, we're kind of at the beginning of a, maybe a second wave, maybe there'll be a third or a fourth. We just don't know. Thanks for that, Janet. And so we've got Philadelphia locked down today. Stephen, where are you calling from? Uh, well, I, I work and teach in Newark, New Jersey, but I'm actually calling from central New Jersey where I live um, in the borough of Highland Park. Um, and central Jersey has not been that fortunate recently. Uh, we have are having a very clear surge. Um, I have right before me here a email that uh, the mayor of Highland Park sent out uh, yesterday. Um, and she's reporting that, you know, sadly in the last week they had, we've had 20 confirmed cases. Um, if you stretch that back about 14 days, um, our numbers now are where they were in April at, at the peak um, in Highland Park. And the trend is um, it's trending younger. And I think this is the real concern. Um, about 10 days ago, 50% of the new cases were 19 and under in Highland Park. Um, and whereas the average age of the 20 confirmed cases currently is 27, with uh, ranging from age three all the way up to age 69. Um, it's a little bit concerning. Um, it, the surge is enough that the Highland Park schools have stopped their, um, they had a, a phased re-entry plan to in-person teaching. And so they were supposed to start on October 
first with the kindergartners, the pre-K to the third grade coming back to the schools. Well, they couldn't, they, they postponed that um, because we didn't meet our target numbers because of, of the surge. And, um, you know, it's sort of an interesting phenomenon. Um, it, it's, you know, maybe we can get into this as to, you know, what the, um, you know, why are we seeing teenagers in particular and younger kids, um, the infection rate go up? Um, I, yeah, I just, since you also have some perspective on Newark, I expect you haven't been back uh, on campus, although you can correct me if you have, but I, I'm curious to know how how you're viewing Newark right now in terms of sort of longer term recovery, because it's one of those places that I know was hit extremely hard in March and April. Yeah. And I think, you know, relatively to where Newark was at, Newark is doing so much better. Um, this, uh, the schools and the campuses are mostly clo uh, closed to students. They're doing remote learning. Uh, one of the exceptions is my primary institution, New Jersey Institute of Technology, where we are, we do have, you know, um, several hundred students on campus, um, and we're doing an experiment in converged learning, which means that some of the students are allowed to come to the classroom with the instructor, instructor, and then some of the students are offsite remotely. Um, I'll be actually starting to commute back into Newark in the spring because I've been assigned a, a, a converged modality. Um, so that'll be an interesting experience. Um, the outbreaks at NJIT have been uh, controlled. Um, so um, the numbers actually in Newark and Essex, Essex, Essex County, at least around the campuses, are better than what we have actually in central Jersey or certainly on the shore. Um, so um, relatively speaking, I think Newark is, you know, holding, you know, holding its own right now, but uh, the numbers are starting to become, you know, climb too. Thank you for that. Thank you for those reports. So um, we're going to talk about COVID-19 and children, but to get to that, we're going to we're going to talk about some historical cases today. And um, Jason, I want to start with you and ask the first question to you. And actually, just to sort of lay out some context for us um, and to tell us a little bit about how the United States responded to the emergence of, of AIDS, but particularly AIDS in children, because I think, you know, culturally, um, anyone who was alive at that time or who's aware of that history, you know, they may not be familiar, be familiar with the pediatric, pediatric story in the United States. States. So can you situate us in that story? I'm sorry, Scott, you, uh, I lost you at the end there. Did we break out? Sorry about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just asking if you would, I think people may not be as familiar with that narrative of AIDS as something that was experienced by children. And so I'm wondering if you could just 
set that context out for us so we can understand sure. it a little bit. Sure. And um, I'm actually glad you read that piece uh, from the Times about uh, uh, children being orphaned by the disease, because that was actually a, a big uh, problem for um, children with HIV AIDS because so many of their um, so many of their uh, mothers and fathers died from the disease um, and or were so sick they were unable to care for them. So they were often orphaned in hospitals and lived in hospitals for weeks and months. And in a couple rare cases, one child in Florida, I think for a couple of years even. Um, but to sort of take a step back, um, so uh, yeah, so typically, right, I mean, the, the, the grand narrative of, of the HIV AIDS epidemic um, has focused largely on, on adults in the United States, particularly gay men, um, uh, uh, gay communities in, in some cities and elsewhere. Um, and right around the same time that um, we start to see, uh, we now know retrospectively that cases were being confirmed in the, you know, uh, the late 70s, uh, the first actual case of pediatric AIDS retrospectively uh, diagnosed was 1977 um, in New York City. Um, but in New York, Newark, around the same time, in Miami, Florida, those three were kind of the epicenters of where the first cases were being uh, seen or were saw by clinicians and clinical researchers at the time. Um, so right around 1981, once the MMWR comes out in June of that year and shows that the first cases of uh, pneumocystis pneumonia or PCP uh, had, had killed five young gay men in Los Angeles, um, there were folks in Newark and in, in the Bronx that were seeing similar things going on with children. And they were like, wait, this looks very similar to what, um, what they saw in these adults is, is happening in these children. It took them a little while uh, to, get, uh, to get the studies out from about 81 to 83. Some scientists were a little skeptical. They were like, I don't think this is HIV or AIDS. It wasn't HIV yet at the time. Um, but around 83, the first... Um, cases were published in JAMA in the Journal of American Medical Association that showed uh, that children were in fact um, uh, contracting the disease. And these are children that weren't getting it from tainted blood products or blood supplies. So around 82, you did see that a little bit. And, and Stephen could speak more about this with uh, children with hemophilia. Um, but these were kids that were uh, contracting the disease perinatally. So in other words, in utero or at birth. Um, and the numbers were still relatively pretty low in 80, 83. Um, right around 85 to 87, we see the, the, the crest sort of go up. Um, and uh, the, the connection to IV drug use uh, was very strong with, uh, with pediatric AIDS um, and heterosexual contact. So a lot of the women that contracted the disease um, uh, usually contracted it through either IV drug use or sex or some, you know, combination of the two. Um, and that's where we start to see uh, around like 1987, um, you, we started to see a focus on, uh, uh, a national focus on children with the disease, uh, in large part because it was affecting these poor communities uh, that were um, mostly communities of color in places like Newark and New York City. Um, and that's like right, right around the same time, uh, this is when you start to see the, the border, what they called the border baby crisis. Um, so around 86, 87, you start to see these news stories 
uh, popping up on on the nightly news and in the newspaper. Um, politicians are starting to get uh, a wind of this, um, of this story of these children uh, being orphaned in hospitals because they're, like I said, their parents either died from the disease uh, or were too sick to care for them. Um, and they were also being orphaned or left in hospitals because um, a lot of people were scared to, to foster these children because they had this, this deadly disease, right? A, scared of potentially contracting the disease themselves, or B, the child uh, was uh, inevitably going to die. The case fatality rates for AIDS are, are quite high. They're over 50%. Um, and so, yeah, and in addition to that, most of the children were poor Black and Latinx children. So getting them adopted was a real uh, tough go for the first probably six years of the epidemic. Um, and um, yeah, I don't know how much more context you want me to go. I mean, to give you the broad sweep, but I mean like um, right around that same time, you start to see the first kind of federal responses to the disease. So um, the Abandoned Infants uh, Act is passed in 1988. That's the first kind of real federal money devoted to pediatric AIDS to help this, this problem that I just called the border baby problem to get them out of the hospitals, to get them into foster families and foster care facilities. Then of course you have um, the Ryan White Care Act, which is passed in 1990, which is the first big sort of massive you know, fund uh, to, to help um, not just uh, families and children with the disease, but everybody with the disease. Mm. Um, but the, to go back to your initial uh, question about the response, what's really interesting is, um, and I, we could maybe talk a little bit about the, the, the similarities and dissimilarities with COVID, is that the first sort of few years, the story, the narrative that you see, especially in mass media and, and um, uh, uh, public conversations about it was really kind of around a medical mystery. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. here's this disease affecting adults, that's now affecting children, you know, what's going on there. So there's this kind of medical mystery narrative. Um, and then by the time you get to around 86, 87, um, when there is a, um, there's more focus on the disease in general, just uh, uh, across the board, you see uh, the Americans focusing on it, but also um, there are legislators, policymakers, pediatric AIDS advocates really pushing to get resources for these children. And this is where we see like this innocent victim narrative uh, really starting to sort of drive some of the conversations and some people pushing back against it because of the politics of the of the epidemic. And we could go in more detail there. Um, so that's kind of like the first initial responses um, uh, in those early years. Um, and, you know, we could, you know, yeah. tease some of that out a little bit more if you want. <clears throat> no, no, thank you for that. And I guess I'm I'm interested, maybe Janet, I'll bring you in on this, the degree to which um, what we can say about how pediatric AIDS may have been invisible to mainstream culture, what might have been the conditions, because it seems to have, if I've got you right, Jason, kind of been wrapped into broader narratives about um, about parenting, around urban America, around race, and you know, you're saying there's 10 years went by before there was some significant federal response in that regard. I'm sort of curious about that. So maybe Janet, can you talk a little bit about you know the invisibility of pediatric AIDS in those early years? Well, if you think back, if, you can, if you're as old as I am, you can remember quite well that AIDS was situated as a condition that 
that gay men brought upon themselves through their sexual activity, that drug users brought upon themselves through their injection drug use. It was a disease that signaled to many, many people in a, in a highly political time that um, these, people were, these people who were suffering were not victims, but victims of their own making. And as we discover children with HIV, uh, the first narrative we want to lay on them is what, what Jason said. We want to say, oh, their parents did this to them. Their parents did it by injecting drugs or their parents did it through their sexual behavior. Um, and so we really have to make a turn to say, these are children. They didn't give it to themselves. They're the quote, innocent victims. So how can we help them? How can we sort of sever them from the situations in which they live, in which their parents live, and the structural inequalities that creates these conditions and present them as innocent victims so that we can get funding to them. And in many ways that reflects a kind of historical experience where we, we'd have other epidemics, outbreaks, and we build orphanages, right? It's like we'll find, the what we'll call the innocent victims or the worthy people and we'll build structures for them and then perhaps from those structures will grow a broader awareness of the conditions that people live in of health and disease but it it's a long long process and i think what's different perhaps or what we're waiting to see with the covid HIV situation comparisons now is the international perspective, because we do start paying some attention to uh, children and communities overseas who are massively affected by HIV AIDS. Uh, we know that COVID is an international problem, um, and it'll be interesting to see if we somehow are able to leverage uh, more funding, vaccine support as, as some uh, NGOs are doing and the World Health Organization is doing to funnel um, COVID treatments or preventions overseas. Uh, and in fact, if we're going to use this sort of innocent victims model in that case, I guess we'll, we'll find out. Stephen, let me bring you in. And I mean, it's so complicated. And I was living through that time too. And I, I mean, as Janet and Jason have explained it, you have sort of two simultaneous cultural moves happening. One of one of those is defining gay men um, as disease vectors, which plays into the existing homophobia of America. And then the other hand is the necessity mm -hmm. to try to frame children separately in that discussion. And I know mm -hmm. you've done research on, on pediatric hemophilia. Can you tell us that story a little bit and how it sort of wraps into what Janet and Jason were talking about? Yeah, I think before I, bring hemophilia in into the dynamic there. I think what's really important, and this was understood at the time in the, certainly in the late eighties um, when historians, cultural historians in particular were beginning to look at the narratives of AIDS around this newly emergent epidemic. Um, but, you know, in retrospect, it's really important to understand if we're going to understand the innocent victims narrative of that particular time, you have to kind of go back into the 20th century and understand how, you know, sick children were framed. And Janet's alluded to this, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, we're all familiar, or many of us are familiar with the concept of the poster child. Um, and, you know, the legacy of, uh, you know, children, you know, the uh, children with polio, infantile paralysis, um, or children with uh, leukemia or cancer, um, and their images being leveraged for res resources, whether they're governmental or philanthropic, um, towards, you know, in the case of the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis and uh, the mar their March of Dimes campaign, the, the, these images of these children are used to raise money, not merely for research, but also direct aid and treatment in the um, uh, beginning in the late 1930s and through the 40s um, up until, um, you know, the um, Salk delivers his um, kill virus vaccine and, and they have the trials. Um, so the thing is, by the end of the 1970s, before HIV and AIDS is visible as a phenomenon, um, sick children is this, like, like childhood itself, is this kind of trope, come at the embodiment of, of innocence. Um, you know, and you think about the war on cancer in the 1970s and how they were leveraging images of kids with leukemia and, and, uh, and kids with cancer uh, to help resource the broader campaign to develop research and uh, bring public attention to cancer. All of this is going on before AIDS hits the scene. Um, now, the first pediatric AIDS cases that are documented by the CDC are, are, are really uh, kids with hemophilia who need, um, you know, transfusion therapy um, to help their blood clot. And the clotting factor concentrates that uh, are, are being used um, uh, with hemophilia patients, uh, we now know uh, were contaminated with HIV. Uh, they didn't know this at the time, but, um, and there's a, you know, what did they know when kind of a uh, very complicated story there. Uh, but already by 1983, 1984, um, it's very clear that something's in the blood supplies causing um, uh, AIDS that children are getting sick of it through transfusions. Um, and these kids, these hemophilia kids, and, and, and many of them had, had been raised in the 70s, born in the late 60s, 70s, and they were, they were used to being treated as kind of held up on a pedestal, as kind of ideal subjects. And Ryan White, who is the kind of prototypical face of pediatric AIDS in America, and later on in 1990, the whole uh, federal response to AIDS is named after him. He's just died in 1990. But in uh, 1984, when he's late 1984, when he's first diagnosed, 
Um, all this, all, and, and, and he had prior to that been a poster child for hemophilia and to stay, you know, in his local area of Indiana. Uh, suddenly he finds himself with a disease that is heavily stigmatized. He, his, his family wants to get him back into school in the 85, 86 school year. Uh, he faces ostracism and they, they don't allow him in the school. He goes to court eventually by, I think in the fall of 86, he's allowed to return to school, but then parents and children vote with their feet and walk out of school. They don't want to be in school with a, a, a child that's um, infected with AIDS. Um, and at the time, um, he, he wins his battle in, in many ways, and he wins the battle uh, in the public domain because of the press bringing attention to the discrimination against him. But I, you know, I was always drawn to the work of Sander Gilman, the kind of cultural historian. In, in night, as early as 1988, he writes, a, he writes about Ryan White. And I'm just gonna quote him. He's, he's saying that AIDS is already framed as, you know, in these highly stigmatizing ways, as a, as a sexually transmitted disease and as a as a drug of, uh, I mean, as a as a result of drug use. So, what do you do with these cases of pediatric AIDS? And the thing that he says, he says, the stigmatization at that point is so pervasive, widespread, that it permeates the categories of childhood. Um, you know, these categories of social organization, which would otherwise seem to be generally immune to um, these sorts of stigmas. Um, so there's this battle over this young white, you know, teenager. And it's very contested. the narrative that he and his family want out there is I just want to live a normal life. Uh, the narrative that's out in the press is that there's these people who they don't want anything to do with pediatric, you know, kids with AIDS because they're vectors of disease and, and, and particularly stigmatized diseases. Um, there's even this language in the press where, and Gilman, points this out, where the term hemophiliac um, gets transcribed with homosexual. So sometimes the word is starts to be misprinted as homophiliac. Right. Um, and the abuse and that Ryan White took in school had this particularly vicious character, you know, um, calling him gay. Um, demeaning him. And, you know, the record is, it's very clear in his autobiography and stuff that, you know, that was a terrible year in his life. He ends up moving to another town. He moves from Kokomo to Cicero and has a new, more welcoming school. Um, also in 87, the other really infamous, famous, infamous case is, is the case of three brothers in uh, Arcadia, Florida, Ricky Ray, uh, Robert Ray, Randy Ray, um, and they too go through this school battle, um, and when, once they're allowed to return to school, suddenly their family home 
catches fire and is burned to the ground. Um, so after the fire of the Ray family, after Ryan White's on his feet, and he's a celebrity, and celebrities are coming to his door. Jason could talk about that. Um, we see in 88, up till Ryan's death, the emergence of this kind of, you know, image of this new kind of AIDS, pediatric AIDS celebrity. Um, Ricky Ray, Ryan White, they're celebrated. Um, in in this context, um, but most kids with AIDS aren't like that. And I, I mean, Jason has a lot to say about that. just want to remind folks, thank you for that, Stephen. And I just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. And today we're talking about pediatric AIDS and the analogy to COVID-19 with Janet Golden, Stephen Pemberton, and Jason Chernesky. So before we do make the turn to talk a little bit more about COVID, Jason, I do want to bring back this point that Stephen was making, um, that if, if Ryan White's story becomes sort of emblematic of pediatric AIDS, and I, I suppose if the focus becomes therapeutic and less about context, um, social context, uh, then, you know, what, what, what do you say to that? Who again becomes invisible? Which children become invisible? If Ryan White is becoming the poster boy, who's not? And I think that's, to me, um, you know, understanding that is gonna be a crucial part of the conversation around COVID, I think. Yeah, I mean, thanks for bringing that. Up. Um, um, the, the kind of racial erasure that happens, in, at least in the historical memory of the AIDS epidemic, is definitely uh, seen in in how many people remember Ryan White as the the, the child. I, matter of fact, I was TAing a class here with two uh, bio big big time biomedical scientists at Penn, and uh, they had a guest lecture come in, and we were chatting, and he he's like, "So, what do you work on?" I was like, "Oh, I'm writing." a you know, a history of pediatric AIDS in the U.S. He's like, oh, Ryan White. And I was like, no, yeah, not really. But, you know, <laughs> so, you know, in other words, like that, right, it, 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 that just symbolizes this kind of memory. Um, well, what's really important, too, is that the children that were born with HIV, number one, nine, nearly 90% of kids with AIDS in the United States uh, were born with the disease. And globally, that's also very high, too, right? Most of the cases around the world are, are perinatally transmitted. Um, 75 to 80%, 85% of the children in the U.S. were Black or Latinx. Uh, even today, even though the numbers are way down since uh, 1994, when you have uh, uh, the introduction of antiretroviral therapies that actually reduce uh, the transmission in utero, um, but still the the racial and and um, socioeconomic disparities are quite high, and there's a corollary here to um, COVID, which I think we we might want to touch on. Um, but they they weren't necessarily these children weren't necessarily totally invisible. It's how Americans saw them, and between 1987 and 1992, pediatric AIDS really had its kind of like that. That was the time it was at the top of the public agenda. 
And those years might sound familiar to other American historians because that's also the convergence of other phenomena going on in the United States, right? You have the quote unquote crack epidemic and quote unquote crack babies, right? All these stories are being sort of intertwined at the same time in mass media. Um, in fact, the um, I mentioned the Abandoned Infants Act in 1988. That's actually was for both children that were um, uh, taken from their parents that were using crack cocaine and who were left in hospitals and children with HIV. But HIV became almost kind of the cover, so a political cover for that for that legislation to pass. Um, because who's who's not going to be for sick, dying children, right? I mean, that was kind of the, the the political calculus there. But this heightened degree of visibility was directly tied to conversations about the problems that many Americans saw in the quote unquote inner cities, right? Uh, whether it was whether it was drugs, whether it was violence. Um, this is also the time where the underclass is being used to describe the kind of subset of the poor in these areas, right? Mm. Um, so the disease is attached to that. So that's the kind of visibility. And then once the country kind of moves on from those conversations, we see that pediatric AIDS is also no longer um, part of those, part of, you know, top of the public agenda. Uh, plus, plus, at the same time, people are moving on from the disease in general. But this idea of um, uh, how, you know, uh, you were talking about therapeutics, um, but also, um, you know, th the memory of Ryan White also erases the conversation that was going on in the 1980s and 1990s, where you had pediatric AIDS advocates who were kind of rediscovering poverty as a, as a structural cause for this disease. Um, and that really percolated to the surface, right? So it wasn't just like, oh, kids are associated with poverty. You have literally people saying, no, it's the direct result of structural inequality. Um, and then once the narrative goes down and once we have a, um, a drug that re helps reduce the rates, that sort of, that, that um, discussion disappears. M much way that Janet was saying with the orphanages, right? And how these, the construction of these institutions divorce or, or, or pull the child from these um, terrible places or quote unquote terrible parents. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1994, you have a techno-scientific solution to do that. You have a drug, right? And it's able to sort of rescue the child and quote unquote, rescue the child from these, from these areas. Um, but there, the, the strong correlation between the, the racialized health disparities and socioeconomic health disparities is really interesting because the numbers, the, the percentages are almost identical, right? 75% of kids now that are dying from COVID. Um, I, think the, I think the numbers, I saw one in one CDC, 121, deaths. Um, and it, it's low relative to, to adults dying from the disease. Um, but what's interesting is our converse, the, the national conversation has, is really focused on schools, right? So this low number of children with the disease is highlighting this sort of like political, uh, politically contentious narrative about whether or not we should open schools or not. Forget about all the structural inequalities that are also, you know, part of that, that problem. Um, so I don't know if you know if you want to maybe Janet or or Stephen want to yeah. chime in on that, but I think that 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 particular connection is quite interesting. Jason, just to to make sure I understand too, this is going to be your book then. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna tell us how we actually were right on the verge of seeing structural inequality through pediatric AIDS, and then we just didn't. I just summer I just made it. 
very, very simplistic, I think. But I mean, if I've just taken away from that really, I think, brilliant sort of explanation you were just giving, um, and particularly those years in the early, in the late 80s and early 90s, and I hadn't made that connection to crack babies. I mean, we're finding unworthy parents around every, every corner, corner yeah, in yeah. 1990, 91, and they all just so happen to live in majority minority communities in cities that are the recipient of it by that point 12 years of federal disinvestment to the point at which they are literally falling apart i'm thinking of philadelphia at that point i mean correct me i'm just trying to summarize kind of what you were saying there yeah no i you're right and the book forget about that for a second but that you know the, the, what's really interesting is the uh uh, the rediscovery of poverty. I think I'm stealing that from Charles Rosenberg. Janet could correct me if I'm wrong or not. I think I actually got that from him. Where you yeah. know, there's these generations where you know, um, uh, particularly among health experts and and and, and healthcare professionals, where they're like, we got to do something about these other problems, right. or the disease oh, yeah. is, is going to persist. Um, and we're seeing that now. I think Mike Udell was even on your. COVID calls talking about this, where public health, you know, they're collecting lots of data about this, but there's no movement. Um, and it'd be interesting to see if COVID does that. I don't know, right? I mean, it's still a big question mark. Well, let's, um, bring, let's bring Janet in and see, you know, what you think. And I, just to, to, to point out some of these numbers, the CDC August report indicated that African-American and Latinx children are hospitalized at higher rates than other children. And as Jason said, maybe the number of children who've died um, has often been pointed to as as low, as if it somehow shouldn't still startle us, but still over 5,000 children hospitalized and um, majority of them were in um, communities of color and low income communities. So Janet, can you translate this into this historical lesson into COVID times for us? Well, I think I'm gonna go in a diff slightly different direction and say what is interesting to me is in in the case of the polio children, the children with uh, hemophilia who contracted HIV, the kids, the infants with HIV AIDS, we had a lot of wonderful, what I'll call visual material, sympathetic looking infants and children and movie stars visiting them. Now with COVID, with a highly contagious disease where people are confined at home or they're confined in hospitals, the images we're getting of children are the ones going to Zoom school while their parents try and work. So we've shifted the visuals a little bit away from youngsters. Um, we're getting a new sort of set of problems here. And the problem is people can't get to work. Not that, not that or these, these people, the kids or their, their elderly, they can't see their elderly parents, of course, these working people, but their kids might bring uh, COVID home from school to them and they won't be able to go to work. It's a fascinating shift in the narrative, in part, I think, dictated by the nature of the virus and the fact that it's so highly contagious. Um, but I, I wonder if that's going to change sort of the level of sympathy we start to build around children with COVID. And, I, and the other piece of that is because we can measure how many people are out of work, um, how many people overall are sick, how many people have spread it to others. Uh, whereas the, the data for children is very inexact because we don't have a 
a nationwide reporting system, different states use different methods. Um, the, the problem of children is just not as visible. And um, we'll have to see where that goes going forward. But we're, you know, we're not, we're not going to have celebrities in, in hospitals visiting the children with COVID wards. So that may, that may have some impact. Janet, before we move too quickly past something you just said there, I think we have to linger on a second. You talked about the data problem. Um, can you tell us, I mean, just from your perspective, what what is the data problem right now around COVID? Well, the data problem around COVID is we don't have a, a, a uniform national reporting system. Um, we don't have a sites a federal site collecting the data, getting it out to every public health official and every uh, school principal that needs to make decisions about it. Uh, different states, uh, particularly around the pediatric problem, are, are using different uh, numbers. There's not a time of day when they have to report. Um, we now see that there's excess mortality that um, overall that may be related to COVID, but we don't have a standardized way of measuring that. And when you do that, you can't get resources to the communities that need them because you don't know what the need is. So I think it's a it's a, a terrible kind of problem. Um, it was a little different. I think Jason can correct me if I'm wrong on the in the HIV AIDS because we did develop a, a blood test. We did know who had it. We did know the numbers who died from it. It was not a rapid death necessarily. So. Um, uh, we've, we've really kind of failed in, in sort of a first principle of public health, which is to get the data and to get that data out so it can be used effectively. If, yeah, can I say something real quick, Scott, if that's okay? Sure, come on in. Yeah, um, no, that's a great point. And, you know, um, the, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out, Pediatrics put out this uh, report that kind of was compiling some of this data. And um, and it's it's revealing. We were talking beforehand. Janet brought this up too. That it's revealing that how you know uh, there is no standard for collecting. And and with HIV/AIDS, it was a, not perfect, but it was much better. I mean, the surveillance, um, the HIV/AIDS surveillance system that was set up after '84 was pretty good. Um, and you were catching a lot. There's a lot of cases that fell through the cracks, of course. But it was like you said, it was a it was it was a slow disaster. It wasn't a a, a, a quick one. So it was able to so people were able to get their hands on it a little bit better. Um, but one of the interesting things about COVID in this um, CDC uh, MMWR from the from the uh, from September, um, when in in the discussion section they actually show that like the data that they're using for this right. Forget about the the fact that it's not standard. Um, the data that they're drawing from, and the debt, and to to show the sort of in inequities and in death rates among uh, Black and Latinx and, and Native American children, um, this is from when kids weren't in school, right? I mean, they weren't in crowded places, they weren't um, together in in these other facilities. So, like, what's going to happen, right? When when you know you rush to open, and that kind of you know, it's very interesting that this comes out right before, you know, the New York Times breaks a story about how the White House was, you know, deliberately kind of pushing or leaning on the CDC to keep this information, you know, um, maybe not, you know, being fully sort of articulated for the public. <clears throat> it's, it's so amazing to me, but um, that we're still, um, there's so much to learn 
just about the virus itself. I mean, this novel coronavirus, but that also, you know, the shutdown of the schools was so quick um, that we are, I think, at a terrifying sort of moment of learning right now about what's going to happen as students are reintroduced. And Stephen was talking about, you know, the situation there in Highland Park where they sort of drawn back on that. But in other communities, I mean, my my brother-in-law and sister are teachers in Austin, Texas, and and there. Uh, it's exactly what Janet was describing and very clearly articulated. People need to get back to work. And and in fact, it was framed as parents need to stop being overprotective and because they need to get back to work because we need to get Texas working again. I've heard this in Arizona, Georgia, and Florida as well. Um, and that if we balance everything out, the, the health hardships of people not working is going to be greater than the COVID hardships of people going back into school and having the disease spread. Of course, it's hard to prove a negative there, but that's been the that's been the rhetoric. Stephen, let me bring you in on on any part of what you've just heard that you want to comment on. But but also, I was really impressed with your you know sort of educating us on the poster child effect. And I'm curious, you know, what's the poster child of of COVID right now? I mean, do we have like a is there a in the United States is there a, a model COVID sufferer? I, I haven't really thought about it that way until you were describing about that that phenomenon. Well, you know, it's uh, I, I don't know. That's a that's a good theoretical question. Um, you know, as we transition from the spring and the summer, the the model COVID person was you know at the end of end of the aging cycle, right in the nursing home, um, and. You all are as have 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 experiencing and, and can guess as well as I can um, what the answer to that question is. But I do want to come back to both what Jason and Janet said. Um, Jason's emphasizing the fact that the numbers on COVID cases uh, in kids uh, are predominantly um, among kids of color, the ones that are really uh, hurt most by a COVID infection tend to be Latinx or African-American. Um, and the so that looks eerily similar to the demographics of pediatric AIDS in the late 80s. Um, and the structural problems are still there. Okay, so that's one commonality. Um, but Janet's also right that the tropes around childhood have been flipped. Uh, this isn't, kids with COVID are not innocent by any means, right? Um, they are vectors. And if the majority of the kids with COVID are the ones we're worrying about, then those vectors are the non-white kids, and that plays into all these stigmas about, you know, immigrants and aliens and others, the other bringing infection into the community and leads to a kind of con narratives of containment. Um, the other thing that's common between the these di dynamics, along with the persistence of the structural inequities, is 
images of kids are being leveraged for political reasons. So the arguments in Texas, and I grew up in Texas as well, so I'm very familiar with this. Um, you know, we need to get the kids back in the schools. Um, that's a political argument, right? Um, it's a kind of playbook and a, of how we should manage things. Um, but it, it plays out on a notion of the child as a, as a vector and it, you know, a vector of disease. So it's the underside of, let's say, the Ryan White story. It's not Ryan White, the innocent victim. It's Ryan White, the kid in your school that's going to contaminate you. Um, so there's some really big dissimilarities between pediatric AIDS and AIDS and, I mean, uh, COVID in, in kids, but the differences are illuminating as to me as much as this kind of broader cultural and then structural similarities, you know? And I don't have any answers, but we, we do have some analytical tools and, and data here that we could use to begin to figure out how, how should we be imagining the model COVID patient, you know? Uh, I don't know. Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and you can get your questions in on the YouTube live. Just put them into the chat there. You can get them up on Twitter. Just be sure to tag at US of Disaster. And I'm talking with Janet Golden and Jason Chernesky and Stephen Pemberton about COVID-19 and children and um, pediatric AIDS history and disease history. Um, Jason, I, just to give you a a shot at that question. We're all historians here, so this is uncomfortable for us in some ways to be talking. Um, although you, you have sociological, some of you have sociological chops too, so maybe you're a little more qualified than me. Um, but mm. what would what what might you be expecting in the next few months, particularly? I mean, I tell you, one of the things I'm worried about is you know, as the economic as we go off an economic cliff, particularly in for essential workers and people who are the most precarious in the economy, and if relief doesn't come, that there will be a, a narrative, of, it's already there, a narrative of blame for those people for not having saved money. I mean, we see this with the disaster victims all the time. They should have been taking better care of themselves. There's already been these kind of, these kind of ripples there. And even that time story I read at the top, and the, there's other, I think people may read that story differently or that story might be reported differently in other news outlets um about the dissolution of the family and and you know in some ways some of the themes we were talking about earlier um about children becoming orphaned because of the failures of parents i worry about that discussion sort of emerging more explicitly here in the coming months i, I don't know do you want to talk a little bit about what you're concerned about as we as we move into these next few months with covid yeah i mean i'm well, one, I'm concerned that, you know, this the sort of rush to get kids in school without really knowing what the real effects of the 
of the disease on the children are. Um, moreover, you know, what are what are these kind of what's the web look like if these children are going back to school and then coming home and then getting their parents sick? I mean, we're already seeing this story play out a little bit where people are concerned that like, okay, well, the child could get their parents and grandmother sick, um, you know, and that could lead to parents dying and, and so forth. That would be a, a big concern. Um, I do, I think um, with where there's a, also a corollary with HIV, I think, um, and that is, um, again, this kind of, the discussion of structural inequalities now has almost become normalized in our, in our, in our discourse, but that's about it. I mean, the, to actually do something about those problems um, is what I'm waiting for. And I'm worried that like once a vaccine comes out, when it, whenever that comes out, or there's other, some other kind of techno-scientific solution that a lot of this stuff, again, is going to get, you know, swept under the rug. Um, you know, because a lot of the stuff that, you know, that could help the children uh, with, with COVID are things like mitigating childhood poverty or just ensuring that every child from conception to uh, 18 has health care, <laughs> you know, and, and these kinds of things like, if, you know, in other words, like if the country wants to put their money where their mouth is, you know, they would they would uh, pony up and be like, if the children really are this precious resource, right, then we're going to give them all the resources we can. Uh, so my fear is that like, we're just, we're going to have this um, discussion about inequalities, but that's, that's where it's going to, where it's going to stop. Um, and, um, and uh, maybe a third thing is that the uh, children, again, are going to maybe be overshadowed by other conversations. And it's tough now, too, because there's so many other things. It's not just COVID. It's, you know, the election's coming. I mean, there's, there's, kind, there's all kinds of other anxieties that, you know, um, are going to dictate some of these narratives. But nevertheless, I think as scholars and even as just, you know, good Republican citizens with, with a little r, uh, that we're, you know, sort of being, uh, uh, stay aware of these issues and not let the children with the disease being overshadowed and especially the things that are are making the disparities uh, a big problem. Janet, I mean, Operation Warp Speed, certainly the Trump administration would like to have all of our attention focused on uh, pharmaceutical <laughs> companies and, and, and I'm not here to criticize that effort but to have to choose that over a thoroughgoing American discussion about structural inequality and racial violence seems like an awfully huge missed opportunity, doesn't it? Well, it's an opportunity we've missed for several hundred years. So as a historian, I, can, I think it's fair to put that out there. I wanna point out two quick things. One, maybe because I'm not from Texas, but as a Californian, I will tell you that the the highest rates of COVID are in our Pacific Islander communities on the West Coast. Um, and they often get left, left out of that discussion. Um, I'm concerned about the discussions. In, uh, there's an Operation Warp Speed for vaccine, but there's also a lot of discussion coming out of the White House about herd immunity, which translates to a eugenic, let those old people die so those parents and let the kids go to school and get sick and then the parents can get back to work. So that concerns me. And the other thing I think we need to keep in mind as we 
we're we're living in COVID real times, but we this is a virus that we do not know much about. We do not understand. We do not know the long-term consequences of exposure to that virus. We know from the 1918 influenza that those people who were exposed had much higher rates of Parkinson's disease in old age when they were exposed as children. What are the long-term consequences for children who have COVID? Does it do permanent brain damage? Does it do heart damage? Does it do lung damage? Does it do kidney damage? Does it do some kind of systemic uh, uh, other kinds of damage? We don't know the answer. So it is very cavalier to say, well, the children aren't dying as much and we don't see pictures of them and old people are old and sick anyway. Um, and we have to get those other folks back to work. Uh, that's a very short-term view of what will be potentially an enormous long-term problem of health placed on top of the structural inequalities that give us a healthcare system that is full of holes, that is un undemocratic, it's demographically corrupted by where you live, who you are, how much money you have, and that's facing, uh, as we face the potential loss of our even our existing access to health insurance. Well, we're almost up on time, but I just wanna follow up on that and maybe everybody could take a turn with this. With Janet, thank you for your correction. I mean, it, if you consider the, the longer stretch of American history, it would be surprising if we looked at structural inequality seriously in this moment, because it just has not been the American tradition. But I'm really, um, I'm really impressed by some of this, you know, insights you have about, you know, the 1918 influenza and those children as they become adults and the health impacts undoubtedly exacerbated by the Great Depression. I mean, these, have to, these disasters have to all be taken as a complex. They can't be separated out independently. So let, let me ask you though, if, if you know of examples where moments like this can lead to activism, in other words, they can open possibilities for the way we think about healthcare in the United States. And you may have to turn to other countries, for examples, for this, I don't know. But I, I'd be curious to know where you do find possibilities in these moments, particularly around children, which as you've all pointed out, children become a sort of battleground for the way Americans think about who deserves and who doesn't deserve healthcare. But I don't know, Janet, can I give that to you first? If you can, I'm not telling you, I'm not asking you to give us a optimistic story on the way out the door. If it doesn't exist, that's fine. But I'm curious about activism in this moment. Uh, well, activism I think will come from many places, but certainly the conjunction we have now with the COVID risks being exacerbated by structural inequalities and, and a heightened awareness of the ongoing racial divides in this country that lead to all kinds of bad outcomes, whether it's encounters with law enforcement or whether it's encounters in trying to rent an apartment or trying to access health care. I think that does lead to a vigorous uh, civil rights activist movement and that will spill over. But um, will it happen? Will it have permanent structural change? Uh, I'm not going to speculate on that. Maybe, maybe I'll leave it to Jason and Stephen. Well, we'll bring you back in the spring for that, I guess. Stephen, what about you? Um, no, predi no predictions here. Um, there, every story of activism that and um, 
and accomplishment that comes out of these kind of health and disease activism around children are all double-edged kind of in my experience. They have uh, a, a lot of short-term gains uh, tied to them and some kind of, they have this arc of, you know, delivering some kind of limited form of justice. But in the broader perspective, they're always, I don't know, in a, uh, far less than what we would hope. And, you know, so to go back to the, the hemophilia activism, for instance, um, in the 90s uh, coalesces around uh, kids like Ricky Ray. And when the uh, hemophilia community, about 90% of people with hemophilia in the United States had HIV or hep and hep C uh, in the 90s, um, they were seeking restitution from the federal government for the lack of oversight by the FDA from Congress. Uh, in 1998, the uh, Congress uh, passes um, the Ricky Ray Hemophilia Relief Fund um, to provide restitution, $100,000 per victim, every family, you know, and, and that's kind of the example, like it's justice served, but is $100,000 per, you know, loss of life, is that, you know, is that restitution is that reconciliation almost everybody in that community says it was a good start but it it wasn't enough a hundred thousand dollars didn't even cover a year's mm -hmm. worth of clotting factor concentrate for a hemophiliac in in many instances mm -hmm. um so so it, it but i don't want to denigrate the hemoph hemophilia activism because it was extremely effective in its moment and it 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 tried to hold up a mirror to the government and to the pharmaceutical industry and say this was abusive and you know they did get held to account to to a small degree but the wheels of biocapitalism move on mm -hmm. um, and the next generation of hemophilia families aren't necessarily even aware of that struggle that happened um, Jason, I want to give you the final word on this. Uh, it's a tradition for the person who's just defended their dissertation always gets the final word. <laughs> is that no, a, it's is a new that, tradition. I just created it, but tradition? it seems appropriate. <laughs> um, there's a lot on the table yeah, here, sure. though, I think particularly, um, and I think some good caution, tempered optimism, and Stephen is a, a polite and careful um, refusal of my binary that we can either be activist or non-activist, but for looking for the complexities within that moment, I'd like to see what you, where you'll take us out with this. Well, I'm, I'm an eternal pessimist, so it's hard for me to see any, any of this, um, uh, getting better, but, um, particularly because, and, and Janet knows this very well too, in that, um, there are, COVID, pediatric AIDS, um, tuberculosis, you know, Cindy Connolly shows us this in her book on tuberculosis, right? I mean, there are just numbers, uh, these, these uh, diseases that are associated with or exacerbated by poverty. Um, you know, this is not new, right? I mean, and so um, th what the response is going to be is, is, a, is a big question mark. Um, I don't, 
No, though. I mean, because right now we're going through, what, the third greatest racial reckoning in our nation's history? Um, so maybe that if, if, if children's health can be kind of um, incorporated the way that the civil rights activists in the second great racial uh, um, reckoning of the 50s and 60s incorporated health inequalities into their activism, maybe that's a way forward, you know, and, and a way of saying like, well, if not for everybody, at least for kids, right, at least we have some kind of um, support um, uh, government support, we're going to need some kind of actual institutional support for this to happen. Um, if we're not going to do it for everyone, do it for the children, get them free access to healthcare, get the kind of uh, mitigation um, um, resources necessary that will help kids not have long-term health effects from these problems and others. Um, that would be my uh, take if it can somehow get kind of consumed into this broader sort of push that's going on now. Um, and hopefully that's it. So actually, as a pessimist, that sounds pretty optimistic. So I don't know. I it's so. like, yeah, yeah, maybe I'm converting. I don't know. But yeah. Well, I promised the panel we wouldn't go past 610. And like every conversation I've had this week, we've gone long. And I really want to thank the panel for this, this conversation. Um, and I want to remind everybody that you've been listening to COVID calls. And you can catch COVID calls every weekday at 5 p.m., Tomorrow, I'm going to be talking to Olivia Troy. Her name may sound familiar to you. She was a member of the Coronavirus Task Force, oh, yeah. and she has left government, and we'll be talking with her tomorrow about that. Very much looking forward to that. And I want to thank Stephen Pemberton, Jason Chernesky, and Janet Golden for this conversation today. Thanks, Scott, for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.